Welcome to the Shift Gold Friday Gold Wrap, your overview of news impacting the precious metals markets. It's Friday, December 22nd. I'm your host, Mike Meharry. Thanks for tuning in. Easy money is one heck of a drug. Imagine for a moment, you have a money printing press. It can spit out $5,000 in perfect $20 bills every single day. That comes to $35,000 per week or $1.82 million per year. Imagine what you could do with that money. Imagine all of the things that you would buy. Imagine the lifestyle that you could live if you had this money printing press. But, you know, maybe $1.82 million a year isn't enough. I mean, you want a $10 million house. You want a yacht. You want a jet. So, you can afford it. I mean, look at your income. You can just borrow the money. You're good for it. You can make the payments. And then, lo and behold, your dog, good old Fido, runs into the table where your money printing press is sitting and it topples, and it breaks beyond repair. How would your life change? You would suddenly have a massive decline in your standard of living, right? And since you borrowed a bunch of money, thinking the easy money would never end, now you're in real trouble. The repo man is going to show up and take your plane and your yacht and your Ferrari. The bank is going to foreclose on your mansion. Next thing you know, you're living in a one-room, dilapidated studio apartment in the Heights. That's an inside joke between my wife and I. It always seems like the Heights are in the bad part of town. I apologize to any of you fine people who live in the nice Heights. Anyway, when you get addicted to the easy money, it is very painful to adjust when it's gone. Welcome to the economy. Our entire economy is built on easy money. It is built on low interest rates and money printing. It can't function without it, not for long. Borrowing and spending make this economy hum. That's why I keep saying it cannot function in a high interest rate environment. And even though 5.5% really isn't that high in historical terms, it's a very high interest rate given the level of debt in the economy. Now, it's not just the U.S. economy. In in fact, the entire world is addicted to easy money. Central banks around the world, from the European Central Bank to the Bank of Japan to the Bank of England, they've all gone the easy money route. They've all slashed interest rates to artificially low levels. They've all uh, printed a bunch of money. So, the entire world is addicted to this easy money. Over a decade of easy money policies incentivized borrowing to stimulate the economy. As a result, governments, individuals, and corporations all borrowed to the hilt. I mean, why not? Right? Interest rates were nearly zero. Borrowing just made sense. And this was all well and good when interest rates were hovering around zero. But when central banks had to hike rates to battle the inevitable price inflation, it pulled the rug out from under the borrow-and-spend global economy. Get this, according to projections by the Inter- International Monetary Fund, global government debt 
will hit $97.1 trillion in 2023. That represents a 40% increase in global debt. This is just government debt. 40% increase since 2019. By 2028, the IMF projects that global public debt will exceed 100% of global GDP. The only time that has happened is when we hit the height of the pandemic. And, of course, the lockdowns. That's what caused it. Because GDP plunged, debt went up. So that's the only time. Now, Americans, we like to brag about being number one, right? We're the greatest nation in the world. Well, when it comes to debt, we're right. The U.S. national debt makes up 32.4% of the total global government debt. According to the IMF, America's debt-to-GDP ratio right now stands at 123.3%. That's a lot. So, unless governments around the world particularly here in the United States, dramatically cut spending and or significantly raise taxes. This debt spiral is only going to get worse, especially if interest rates remain elevated. And honestly, I think I talked about this last week. That's probably the main reason I think the Fed suddenly started talking about rate cuts. You know, you remember back in November, rate cuts weren't even on the table. And then all of a sudden in December, we're projecting three rate cuts in 2024. I really think that the Fed officials, the central bankers, they recognize this interest rate problem coupled with the debt problem, right? They have to know, don't they? So, Here's the extent of the problem. Here's why it's a problem. Let me me give you some numbers here. The federal government's interest expense rose by 23% to $879 billion in fiscal 2023. The fiscal year ended uh, in September. So we're now a couple of months into fiscal 2024. Net interest in fiscal 2023, and this excludes intergovernmental transfers to trust funds, that rose by 39% to $659 billion. Both of those numbers broke records. So we have interest expense already at record levels. Rising interest rates drove interest payments to over 35% as a percentage of total tax receipts. In fiscal 2023. In other words, the government is already paying more than a third of all the taxes it collects just on interest expense. Now, I think I mentioned this last week. The federal government spent $79.92 billion in interest expense uh, to finance, to finance, I can't talk, to finance the national debt. That was just in November alone. That was more than national defense, which was $70 billion, more than Medicare, which was $79 billion. The only higher spending category in the month of November was Social Security. So interest expense is already a significant problem, and it's just going to get worse. Because a lot of the debt that's currently on the books was financed at very low interest rates before the Federal Reserve started its rate hiking cycle. In fact, instead of taking advantage of those low interest rates and locking in longer-term bonds, the Treasury sold a bunch of short-term bonds, I guess thinking that, hey, I mean, these interest rates are going to stay low forever. 
Well, now interest rates are rising. So every single month, some of that super low-yielding paper matures and has to be replaced by bonds yielding a much higher rate. Because, of course, you know when bonds mature, when the debt comes due, the federal government doesn't have any money to pay it. So they have to borrow more money to pay off the people that lent the money, you know, six months ago or a year ago or two years ago, they have to borrow more money. So this is a giant Ponzi scheme to begin with. And every single month, the average interest rate on all of this debt is going up and up and up. The weighted average interest rate on the government's $26 trillion in outstanding treasury bonds and treasury securities It rose to 3.1% in November. That compares with a weighted average rate of 2.22% in November of 2022. So it's gone up uh, nearly a full percentage point just in one year. So you can see the trajectory here, right? This problem is just getting worse and worse and worse. So if we don't see big tax increases or a sudden drop in interest rates, this is only going to get worse. It's only going to cost more every single month just to service the existing debt. And of course, that means there's going to be even more debt because the federal government has to borrow in order to pay off the debt, pay off the borrowing it's already done. So it's a debt spiral. It's bad news. So easy money. It's a heck of a drug, right? I've used this analogy before, and it's not original to me. I know Peter Schiff's used it. Others have used it as well. But it's a perfect analogy. Somebody use it again. This is like a heroin addict. You know, the heroin feels good, or so I hear. I mean, I guess that's why people take it, right? It's party time. Wee! But of course, heroin isn't good for you. It might feel good, but it's not good for you. It's not good for your body. It's addictive. And of course, there's always the chance of an overdose. Now, What happens if the dealer cuts the addict off? Well, of course, the addict goes into withdrawal. And from what I understand, withdrawal is pretty awful. The addict would rather get high than deal with that pain, right? He would rather have the short-term high to relieve the pain as opposed to pushing through the pain, suffering, and you know, fixing things uh, for the long-term benefit of his health. So, we have an economy that is addicted to easy money. The Fed is the drug pusher. And every once in a while, the inherent problems with addiction, with taking drugs, raise their ugly head, right? In the case of the economy, it's price inflation and asset bubbles, right? If you keep injecting money into the economy, keep printing money out of thin air, keep interest rates artificially low, you're going to end up with price inflation. You're also going to end up with asset inflation. We just call those bubbles. So the pusher finally says, you know, I had better cut you off. You got a problem here. You're getting sick. It's not good for you. Developing problems because of this addiction. So the Fed raises rates and it tightens up the monetary policy. In, in other words, it cuts the, the, uh, cuts the addict off. Then the economy goes into withdrawal because that's what happens when d- the drug stops flowing. So the bubbles pop, the stock market deflates. We start to see a bunch of defaults because people can't borrow and spend anymore. So that means the economy slows. And eventually it spirals into a deep recession. Now, our drug dealer, the Fed, 
it doesn't like to see the addict suffer, so eventually it just starts supplying the drug again. And that's about where we are. The Fed is trying to get the economy high again before it completely crashes from the withdrawal. But that just means the problems inherent with addiction are going to rear their ugly head again. More inflation, more bubbles, more malinvestments. See, here's the thing about drug addiction. One of two things is going to happen. Either the addict suffers through the whole withdrawal process and gets clean, or he dies from the drugs, either from an overdose or just from the long-term use. That's it. Those are the two options. I had a father that was an addict. His drug of choice was alcohol, and it eventually killed him. So, either the economy is going to have to crash, and we're going to have to suffer through a very deep recession, a lot of economic pain, in order to cleanse out the malinvestments and deflate the artificial bubbles. That's really what needs to happen. The Fed needs to raise interest rates far more than 5.5%. It needs to really push interest rates up to slay the price inflation and allow all of the malinvestments and, and all of the garbage that this has created in the economy to get out of the system so that we can move forward clean. That's what needs to happen. The other option is the Fed just keeps supplying the drug until the, drop, until the dollar crashes. And honestly, I think the overdose is the most likely scenario. But, I mean, either way, it's bad news, right? We're either talking about a protracted recession with a lot of economic suffering, or we're talking about ultimately uh, getting the end results of this very crazy loose monetary policy, which is a, it's a dollar crash, stagflation. Maybe even hyperinflation. I don't think hyperinflation is the most likely scenario, but super high inflation as there's just too many dollars out there. So when you understand the extent to which the economy is beholden to the easy money drug, it becomes much easier to understand what's going on in the markets. During the December Fed meeting, Powell and company promised the drugs were on the way. Drugs are back in the pipeline, right? And the markets went nuts. We had this long string of 52-week highs in all of the indexes. The Dow actually broke a record. I think it broke the record twice. The S&P 500 was very close to breaking a record. But then, I guess somebody got antsy because some other Fed officials came out late last week and tried to walk things back. New York Fed President John Williams was front and center in the efforts to dampen some of that enthusiasm. Williams said, quote, we aren't really talking about rate cuts right now. now wait a minute. I, I, you know, sometimes you have to wonder, how do these people like look themselves in the mirror? He just said, we aren't really talking about rate cuts right now. And yet, just like, Days earlier, they released dot plots that showed that they're planning on cutting rates three times in 2024. How did they arise to that or arrive to that conclusion if they weren't talking about it? Of course, they were talking about it. He's full of crap. But that's what he said. We aren't talking about rate cuts right now. And he said it was premature to expect rates to fall in the opening months of 2024. So there's the hedge. I mean, I don't think anybody thought, you know, like February, we're going to see rate cuts. I, I think people were thinking like maybe May in this into the spring, right? Anyway, he went on, he said, we, 
We are very focused on the question in front of us, which, as Chair Powell said, is have we gotten monetary policy to sufficiently restrictive stance in order to ensure the inflation comes back down to 2%? That is the question in front of us. Yeah, okay, whatever. Williams also tried to pivot back to the whole data-dependent mantra, right? The, the Fed loves to talk about how it's data-dependent. We're going to look at the data and we're going to respond to the data. He said, quote, It is looking like we are at or near that in terms of sufficiently restrictive. But things can change. One thing we've learned even over the past year, is that the data can move, and in surprising ways. We need to be ready to move to tighten the policy further, if the progress of inflation were to stall or reverse, he said. So, after, I like to call these open-mouth operations, right? The, the Fed sends somebody out to kind of talk, to try to move the market. So, they, they came out, and they they really made clear that there was a policy pivot in play. And then they they run out and they try to to kind of walk it back, right? Because markets front run what they think the Fed is going to do, right? We're talking about rate cuts coming up in, you know, many months down the road. And the markets are reacting to that now because markets are future looking, right? They're looking towards the future. So, the Fed does this a lot. They do open mouth operations a lot. They they try to uh, signal a policy and then if it, if people overreact to it, they then try to walk it back and you know, they try to kind of keep things nice and calm and on a on a smooth trajectory. So, after that, we had again a big stock market rally. In fact, stocks had been rallying prior to the Fed meeting in anticipation of rate cuts. I mean, people have been thinking this is coming for a long time, right? Uh, gold had rallied close to uh, 2050 before Williams ran his open mouth operations. And then after his comments, gold dropped. And on Friday, it closed to around uh, $2,019. And um, so we, we had that downward pressure on gold that you see every time people think that the Fed might just might keep rates a little higher, a little longer. Um, but honestly, the stock market pretty much ignored Williams. And, you know, we've seen this for quite a while now. The markets have become convinced that we're going to have a soft landing, there's not going to be a deep recession, and inflation is whipped, and we're going back to rate cuts. That's really deep in their heart of hearts. That's what everybody thinks. And you get some reaction when when the Fed, you know, indicates something different, but it always kind of pivots quickly back to the idea that we're going to get rate cuts. This time we didn't even really get the knee-jerk reaction. They just kind of bummed their nose at Williams. But after some other Fed officials chimed in and, and people kind of started to process it, the markets finally took the rhetoric to heart. And and let's be honest, I mean, with the rapid rise we'd seen in stock prices, we were due for a correction. So, Wednesday actually started with another in a string of 52-week highs for all of the major stock indices. In fact, the Dow set another record. And uh, markets rallied early in the day. And this was despite the fact that FedEx had a, a big drop in its stock price after a big revenue miss. And by the way, this is yet another signal that the quote-unquote sound economy isn't 
quite so sound. Um, as I said earlier, this economy depends on people borrowing money and then spending it. it. It depends on consumption. So if shipping is slowing, well, that would seem to indicate that consumption is slowing, right? There's less people, or people are buying less stuff that's less packages uh, that's bad for companies like FedEx. Now, I know that online Black Friday spending was actually up. I think it was like 7%. But that's just because things cost so much more money, right? Uh, that's just that's just raw raw money. It's seven percent higher in terms of dollars than it was a year ago. But that's just because things cost more. People are paying more, and they're getting less. So that's not a strong economy. Uh, so nevertheless, uh, the the markets kind of blew that off and, and kept going up and up and up. But later in the day, stocks finally tanked. And, you know, I think there was some perception that the markets were oversold. I think some people maybe did some deep thinking and thought, hey, maybe, you know, maybe we've gotten a little ahead of ourselves. Maybe the Fed is not going to cut as quickly. Um, Just some pessimism kind of creeped in. And we saw a big drop in the stock market. Um, Again, the Dow made a record high earlier in the day, but then uh, finished down 475 points. Uh, So a huge drop there. The NASDAQ was down uh, about 1.3%. The Russell 2000 dropped uh, nearly 2% on the day. And not only did these indexes close negative after making uh, 52-week highs, they also closed below the low from the previous day. And this is something that technical analysts, and full disclosure, I'm not a technical analyst, but I know a little bit. I know enough to be dangerous. But technical analysts call this an outside reversal. So that's when both the high and the low prices for the day are higher or exceed the high and low prices of the previous day's trading. So outside reversal days are considered bullish, or I shouldn't say bullish. In this case, it would be it would be bearish. But it signals a uh, uh, a change in the trend. Right, uh, a significant shift in the trend, particularly uh, if you see an outside reversal when you've had a significant trend. So, in other words, we've seen stocks really going up, just a really strong bull market run. Getting an outside reversal on Wednesday to a technical analyst would signal, hey, we're about to see a a pivot and we're going to see some correction. We're going to see some strings of lows. Uh, That's typically what that technical signal tells us. Um, So, again, it would signal that stocks had reached their top and they're going to correct downward. But alas, economic data came to the rescue on Thursday. And it's interesting, if if you listen to Peter Schiff's podcast on uh, on Wednesday, he did a podcast, talked about the outside reversal, uh, wondered out loud if maybe the Fed had killed the Santa Claus rally with its with its uh, kind of hawkish open mouth operations. And then on Thursday, things just went right back, uh, back to the upward trend. And it was all due, again, to some economic data that signaled the economy is slowing down, which means the Fed will need to cut rates. Um, This is how one mainstream article described that economic data. Quote, economic, I'm sorry, 
equities were buoyed by two economic reports that pointed to a cooling, but far from crashing, U.S. economy. The number of initial jobless claims in the week ending December 16th rose modestly to 205,000 from a prior week's revised level of 202,000, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And U.S. GDP grew at an annualized rate of 4.9% in the third quarter. That was a little bit lower than the first estimate, which was 5.2%. So economy not quite as hot in Q3 as the first projection seemed to indicate. So what happened? Stocks rallied. The Dow was up 322 points on Thursday. So, I mean, it recovered nearly everything that it lost on Wednesday. Um, All the other indexes were also up. Why? Because the the softening economy means the Fed can move forward with rate cuts, right? It's, It's signaling to the Fed, hey, it's working. Economy's slowing down. That means inflation's gonna slow. Strike up the band. The party's on. You know, the drugs are on the way. Woohoo! So, you know, these big stock market swings, the outside reversal, and then that outside reversal basically just being erased and negated the next day, this reveals an ugly reality. Easy money is the only thing the markets and the economy have going for them. As long as people think the heroin is going to be delivered as promised, the party's going to go on. And the moment people think maybe it might not be forthcoming that maybe you know the police are going to come and shut the party down well we get the panic because easy money again is one heck of a drug nobody is paying well i shouldn't say nobody but most people in the mainstream aren't paying any attention at all to the fundamentals right nobody's even really paying attention to the, the the signals we're getting from the economic data. I mean, a slowing economy should be bad for stocks, right? It means earnings are going to be squeezed. It means, you know, the demand's going to drop. But nobody cares. The stock market's going to keep going up because of the drug. Now, I've talked extensively about what I think is going to happen. And again, I don't have a crystal ball. Uh, I'm basing this on what I see happening in the context of my economic framework. So I'm looking macro. I'm looking bigger picture. I've said it before. I'm going to highlight it again. The economy can't run in a high interest rate environment. At some point, something is going to break because of these high interest rates. The economy is going to crash. I don't think there's going to be a soft landing. I think it's going to be a crash landing. And when that happens, the Fed will do what it does. It will slash interest rates to zero. It'll go back to quantitative easing. In other words, it's going to turn the inflation spigot back on. So I agree with the mainstream in Yes, we're going to get rate cuts down the road, but it's not going to be because, oh, we won the inflation fight and we can kind of roll this back and we're getting the soft landing and the Fed is, you know, you know the Fed is a great pilot. We're, we're piloting the plane right into that soft landing. No, I think we're going to get the rate cuts because the economy crashes. There's some type of crisis, some, something in the financial system cracks, you know, uh, and maybe the banks collapse. I, I don't know what it's going to be, but something is going to break. Commercial real estate. There's all kinds of things out there uh, that are uh, mal-invested. 
plenty of things to break. Something's going to break. That's what's going to precipitate not only rate cuts, but also a return back to quantitative easing. So, yeah, the inflation spigot's going to start running again. But again, as I've said before, I don't think it's going to happen tomorrow. And I've talked about this extensively as well. I've run through the timeline, but you know, it takes time for this stuff to play out. You don't raise interest rates today and get the result or the impact of that tomorrow. It plays out over the long term. And, you know, comparing this to the 2008 financial crisis, I kind of think we're like in mid 2007 right now. So we got a ways to go, in my view. I mean, I mean, we could wake up tomorrow with something crashing, right? But I feel like that it's going to take a while for this to play out. But, you know, We've already had something break, right? Some people will say, well, look, you know, the, the Fed raised interest rates to 5.5% and, and they've been up there for a little while now. Nothing's happened. Nothing bad's happened. Well, yes, something bad happened. We had a banking crisis. Remember back in March, we had these banks failing because interest rates had gone way up and the value of these banks' bond portfolios had crashed and in uh, uh, Silicon Valley Bank, you know, they, they tried to... to get rid of some of these uh, badly uh, depreciated assets and, and it ended up crushing their balance sheet and the whole bank went under, right? We had a banking crisis. Something did break. You can't say, well, they raised interest rates and nothing happened. Yes, something happened, but the Fed was able to paper over that with a bailout, right? Remember the bailout? We've got the uh, the bank term funding program, the BTFP, that banks can tap into if, if they need access to cash. So that way they can borrow against these uh, bonds, which have devalued, but they can borrow against them at face value. It's a sweetheart deal, something you and I would never get. But the Fed did that, and they were able to kind of put their finger in this hole in the dam, kind of seal that crack up, at least for the time being. And by the way, in the last month, Get this, banks have borrowed nearly $17.5 billion from that bailout program in a month's time. And that was after a $5 billion increase in November. Now, you can go back and, and look through uh, the articles that I published on shiftgold.com slash news. And if you go back in November, you can see where I reported on the what I called at the time a $5 billion surge in borrowing uh, from this bailout program. I called it a surge dim, so I, I don't know what I'm supposed to call this. You know, Maybe it's a tidal wave of borrowing. $17.5 billion, that's a lot, right? As of December 20th, there was $131.3 billion in outstanding loans in that BTFP. Uh, yeah, that might be a problem. I mean... Stop and think about what I'm saying. This is a program for struggling banks set up last March to address a banking crisis. And in just the last two months, banks have tapped into that program, a bailout program, to the tune of $22.5 billion. We're now, what, nine months from that banking crisis? It's still going on, right? We just don't see it because... The banks are getting bailed out. The Fed papered it over. They made it look good. And they can point and say, oh, look, the banking system is sound. It's not sound. There's 
banks tapping into a bailout program. And it's notable that this sudden spike in bailout borrowing is happening even as the bond market has rallied a bit. Bonds have regained some of their value, and this has ostensibly provided some relief on the bank's balance sheets. So things should be getting better, and yet we're seeing this this surge or tidal wave in borrowing from this bailout program. Now, I will concede that $131 billion in outstanding bailout loans is insignificant when you compare it to the $22.8 trillion in commercial bank assets that are held by all of the commercial banks in the United States. There's about 4,100, by the way. So the fact that there are some troubled banks still tapping into that bailout program nine months after the crisis, it doesn't necessarily mean the banking system is on the verge of collapse, right? But while the bailouts might not be a fire, it's at least smoke, right? There are still problems in the banking system that are bubbling under the surface. That's the point that I'm getting to. Things aren't fixed. You've still got these central planners in there tinkering around, trying to paper over and cover up the problems that they've created. And I've said it once, I'll say it a million times, it's only a matter of time before something else breaks. And as we've seen, you know, it only takes a few banks to really start a massive uh, you know, kind of a domino effect where you have uh, what looks like a small crisis in the beginning turned into a big crisis, right? We had three banks collapse back in March, three major or mid-sized banks. The Fed had to set up this bailout program. The FDIC had to step in. They had to take very dramatic steps to, to kind of stick their finger in there to stop the dominoes from boom, 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 going on down the line. So what happens the next time, right? Those dominoes are still sitting there, and at some point, somebody's going to go, Dink, and it's going to and it's going to be a huge mess. Only a matter of time. The addict needs his drug. If he doesn't get his drug, we know what's going to happen, right? We know what happens when addicts don't get their drug. We know what withdrawal looks like. We know what an overdose looks like. We know what's going on. And what's most certainly going to happen? What we don't know is how it's going to play out. And I was talking with a friend of mine today. You know, it's easy to to get wrapped up in doomsday scenarios because I think that the macroeconomic environment is screaming doomsday scenario. But we don't know how it's going to play out because there are so many factors in the economy. And, and so many times the government has been able to, to kind of you know, bail things out. I, t I talk a lot about the fact that in 2019, we saw the Fed pivot back to easy money. It was cutting rates. It was running QE because we had a stock market, not a crash, but a, but a pretty significant uh, drop in the stock market in October of 2018. It was clear that the rate hikes that the Fed had done were starting to pop the bubbles and deflate the bubbles. So the Fed stepped in. They started doing a little bit of QE, except they said, oh, this isn't quantitative easing. It was. We saw an increase in the Fed's balance sheet. Uh, that meant more money being injected into the economy. And then COVID came. And I really think that COVID kind of saved the uh, Federal Reserves and the U.S. government's bacon. It allowed them to put the monetary heroin on steroids, you know, give the huge injection uh, and, and kind of paper over again the problems. So, you know, things can happen that we don't expect. 
you know, expect the unexpected. So, and again, there are so many things in the economy, right? I, I, in, in 2008, it was housing, and we had the whole subprime thing, and, and there was this kind of a confluence uh, of where we had easy money being pumped into the system, and then we had these government policies that were really incentivizing people to uh, invest in real estate, and that created the real estate bubble, and then we had the whole subprime thing. So, it was that perfect storm in that sector. This time around, I mean, yeah, there's problems in residential real estate now, um, but not to that extent. It's different. Now we see a big problem in commercial real estate. So maybe that'll be what precipitates the crisis because uh, a lot of these mid-sized banks and small banks that already have issues with their bond portfolios and are already on shaky ground, they're the ones that are most exposed to these corporate real estate loans. So maybe that will be the thing. But it could be something else. We, we don't know. And it could be something I haven't thought of yet. But what we know is that the easy money is necessary for this economy. The Fed has taken the easy money away. So there's two choices here. It can either give back the easy money, which means more inflation. The inflation fight is not over. Or it can persist in fighting the inflation and just totally crash the economy. One of those two things is going to happen or some combination thereof. So I think, you know, the lesson here is that you want to be ready. And I think this is a good time to talk to a shift gold precious metal specialist. You can do that by just calling 1-888-GOLD-160 or you can email info at shiftgold.com or go to shiftgold.com, go to the getting started tab and you can talk to those folks right there online and uh, you know let them know let them know what your concerns are let them know what kind of your goals are and what you have to invest and they can help you figure out how precious metals might fit into your portfolio and into your investment strategy they will personalize uh, their advice to what you need these guys are fantastic so give them a call today don't wait you know um, I say there's time and I think there is but you never know and you can't buy fire insurance when your house is on fire. And, uh, you know, gold's a good way to hedge against some of this stuff. Silver's a good way to hedge against some of this stuff. So talk to them today. And with that, we're going to call it a gold wrap for the week. You can get more details on all the stuff I've talked about and more. And, of course, keep up with the latest precious metals news and analysis throughout the week over at shiftgold.com slash news. If you haven't done it already, you can subscribe to the Friday Gold Wrap. Uh, we're on Apple Podcasts, we're on uh, the Google Podcast. we're on the Shipgold YouTube channel. And if you go to the show notes page over at shipgold.com slash news, you can go directly there and find those links. Of course, you can always email me, mmahari at shipgold.com. Love hearing from folks. Uh, it's almost Christmas. Hope you got your shopping done if Christmas is the thing you do. And uh, I hope you have a very, very Merry Christmas uh, or that you had a happy Hanukkah or whatever it is that you celebrate. I hope it's a great holiday season for you. Uh, and I will be back again for the last Friday Gold Wrap of the year next week. Thanks. Thanks.